Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking to a singer-songwriter with a remarkable talent for channeling his life experiences into his music. Rustin Kelly was born in Georgetown, South Carolina, but he moved all over with his family, at one point spending a year in Belgium. In a rare twist for a country artist, he was a competitive figure skater in high school. But despite having Olympic potential, he found himself craving something more. Partly inspired by his father, he spent more and more time playing guitar and writing songs, and he eventually made his way to Nashville. Since then, Rustin's story has been something of a roller coaster ride. He struggled with an addiction that almost cost him his life, and then he married and divorced one of the most famous women in the music business. Most recently, he moved to a small town north of Nashville to spend the pandemic working on a historic house and to write an honest and vulnerable new album called The Weakness. All that and his grandmother's sausage balls on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Rustin Kelly, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me, Sid. Rustin, you were born in Georgetown, South Carolina, one of my favorite places on the planet. I grew up going to Polly's Island when I was a kid, and I just love that part of the world. How long were you actually there? I was born in South Carolina in 1988 and lived there till about 1991. A lot of my family, my dad's family, his side lived in Georgetown. They still live there. And our house was right down the street from my grandma. So it was like very Southern kind of cliche living. And we'd go and have dinner over there and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I was a baby, but have very fond memories of going back and seeing them all the time. So did you grow up doing stuff on the water, crabbing, digging for clams, you know, any of that kind of stuff? When we went back, we'd go to like Myrtle Beach every once in a while or go to Polly for fun. But for the most part, it was like sitting on the porch with my grandmother and cousins would come by, uncles would come by and make a big dinner, etc. It was really more family oriented. And I wasn't old enough to have high school friends or anything like that there. So it was basically just hanging out with my grandma when I was there. Tell me a little bit about your grandmother. My grandmother was one of those people that showed you how much she loved you rather than told you how much. I think that's pretty indicative of Southern Depression era generation. And when she would cook for me, that would be like a a sign of love. And she was straight up. There was really no BS involved really with anything that she did. And it taught me a lot about like the way that my dad loved and the way that he learned to show love which was like to show it a lot and not have to necessarily say, I love you all the time. But she's still alive. She's 96. She is rocking and rolling. And she's like with it too. She's was a regimented woman and stuck to her routine. It's kind of paid off for her. She's lived a long life. What's her name? Her name's Lucille. (laughs) It's such a classic. (laughs) Like, you know, what else is it? It's Lucille. (laughs) (laughs) So what did your mom and dad do for a living? My mom worked a couple jobs when my mom and dad met. Dad was working at a paper mill in South Carolina. He worked for International Paper. He was an engineer in the mill 
and doing all that grunt work. He started working there when he was 18. I think when he met my mom, she was a, a radio DJ and that my grandmother used to listen to her station. And I can't remember what the station initials were, but she played only like soft jams. <laughs> you know, it was like soft jazz and stuff. My dad around that time actually had won Bob Hope's national songwriting competition. So he'd be working in the mill and then would write songs at night and wow. go and play in bars and stuff. And he entered into it and won. They offered him a recording contract and management deal on like publishing and stuff. And he turned it all down. Depression era parents kind of instilled in him that you got to like go and kill something to bring it back home for everyone to eat. And in the 70s, a musician was not a viable source of income. So he gave it all up and continued working for international paper. Well, and of course, Georgetown has that big paper mill right there. Oh, yeah. That's where he worked. Center of town, yeah. Yeah. You talked about your grandmother cooking and that that was one of the ways that she showed love. Are there certain dishes that you kind of remember that stand out for you? Oh, yeah. She would make sausage balls. Every time I came over, I could eat a truck full of those pork sausage balls that were breaded and we put jelly or jam on top of them. I mean, she would cook ham a lot of the times, her green bean casserole, broccoli rice casserole, basically all the cheese and carbs you could <laughs> ever want. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so were the holidays a big thing for y'all? And was she kind of ground zero for a lot of that? Mm hmm. Well, on my mom's side, they kind of spread out through Texas and Idaho. Most of the time we spent Christmas, in my memory, at my grandmother's house in South Carolina. And everything was centered around food. That's just like the way that they do it. (laughs) Well, and I've also heard you talk about the church a good bit. And your music is very spiritual in a lot of ways. Talk to me a little bit about what the church meant to your family and, and to you. So I had an interesting relationship with religion in general growing up because my mom was raised Mormon and my dad was raised Southern Baptist. And Southern Baptist in South Carolina didn't have the friendliest assumptions around that time of what being in a religion that they didn't quite understand or care to understand meant. But there was one thing that grounded my family as a rock, which was the belief in God. And my parents believed in Jesus Christ, both of them equally, they just believed it in different ways. You know, some Sundays I'd go with my mom and Mormon church really stressed family values. Really, like I saw where my mom kind of came from because she's the rock of our family, the emotional rock. Family has always been something that through staying connected, you know, we can't really fall that far as if we might would, you know, if we were on our own. It softened my dad's heart, I think. I think Southern Baptists can grow up a bit with a sense of maybe guilt or fire and brimstone. And I mean, find your own path, however it shakes out for you. But the one rock was family. And that belief in family was rooted in doing unto others as you would like to have done to you, which was quintessential principle of being a Christian. So I would go to church, but I wasn't very active. I was more interested in what was going on in my own world up here. We moved so much that like I was the new kid in the cafeteria and 
church was not like a place of refuge, but my sense of a maker was everything that I feel like I did creatively. I don't know. I just felt like I could connect it to something that was way bigger than me. Even if it was like a drawing of Batman, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And y'all moved all over the place, you know, all the way through high school. You lived in a bunch of different places. I think you lived in Wyoming, even moved to Belgium at one point. Did you always have a sort of ritual of going to church or did you lose some of that as you moved to all these places? I lost the routine of going to church. And I think in a really wonderful way, everyone should have a bit of your wandering years when it comes to what roots you and what your source of hope is, whether it's God or the universe. And when we moved to Belgium, I mean, it popped my entire family's cultural bubble wide open. It challenged their beliefs about what truth was when mom befriended an Iraqi woman in French-speaking class and had a very radically different belief about the divine than my mom did. But at the same time, they became fast friends. And my dad had people that he would meet, like you'd go to the grocery store there and you'd see monks in orange robes just getting eggs and stuff. And it begged the question to me with going to different churches every weekend, how can it be this and this? And then you go to Belgium and it's like, okay, well, how can it be this, 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 and this? And so it rooted in me that there was way more to it than a human mind could understand. And I think when it's all said and done, exposing myself to that enriched what I feel like there is compassion and a sense of togetherness in the divine and in God, which was a really special thing that happened. It took a minute, you know, I was a little wild for a while, but I was looking, you know, I was searching very, very hard. So I want to talk about your sort of discovery of music. And you talked about your dad and his musical aspirations. And your dad, as anyone who's followed you probably knows, Tim Kelly is a very talented musician. And he's played pedal steel with you for a long time. And you helped him produce a terrific record in 2021. Does a lot of your interest in music sort of start there? Or it sounds like your mom was into it too. I mean, when did you start to discover, okay, this is a thing that I am really excited about? My dad used to play pedal steel all the time in the house. It was a very comforting sound. And the way that he played was very atypical of a steel guitar player where there wasn't much twang to it. It was just like full throttled emotion. And that kind of like set my emotional tone of what made me feel as a kid. And then I remember we were in Cincinnati one night and he was about to go to bed and I asked him to play guitar for me. And he played this song called Old Friends that he had written when he was 18. And it's one of those moments you never forget. It was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And it's also your dad. And I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. So, you know, little by little, he'd introduced me to Jackson Brown and James Taylor Joni Mitchell, Cream, Jimi Hendrix. And that kind of set the bedrock to me for how I wanted to express myself. It was always in me, but it was really moments like that that kind of took it out of me and me wanting to put myself there in the world. When did the songwriting thing really start for you? Man, I was writing songs since I was a kid. You know, I didn't know that I was writing songs. We had the old Microsoft computer with that 
microphone you could hold up. And my sister and I would record silly songs together. And I moved away from home when I was in eighth grade, going into my freshman year of high school to competitively figure skate with these Olympian coaches. I'd started winning some competitions. I just was like weirdly good at it. And I had this opportunity to train with these star coaches and I went out there. And as a lot of things, when you get what you want, it may not be exactly what you want. And sometimes it's certainly not what you need. I felt very alone. And I was like, I have this dream I'm chasing and I'm succeeding at it, but I feel so empty. And that's an intense emotion, I think, for a young man. And I had brought my guitar out with me and I just started learning. And I think this was the crux of when I decided that this is what I was going to do. Was I sat in this room that I was staying in that was a stranger's room to me. And I started playing guitar and singing about how I felt. And it made me feel better. And it didn't just make me feel better. It made me feel like I could understand my situation emotionally a little better. And I didn't know all of that at the time, but I just kind of rolled with it and I couldn't stop. I was 14 and that's when I cracked open my first notebook. And here we are at notebook number 63. And I'm doing this for a living. So, <laughs> After the break, I'll talk more with Rustin Kelly about his years in Nashville, the music he's made with his dad, his marriage to Casey Musgraves, and his new album, The Weakness. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the singer-songwriter, Rustin Kelly. So you moved to Nashville. Tell me a little bit about those early days. Was there a moment that really kind of gave you hope that this could be real, that you could make it? I don't know, man. I I had no plans. I was like, I think I'm going to go where the wind blows. We were in Belgium. I graduated high school, and my sister moved to Nashville. And when I was in Belgium, I had ironically gotten into like deep American folk music, like the Carter family and Lead Belly, Jimmy Rogers. And of course, I love Johnny Cash. So when my sister moved to Nashville, I was like, dang, that sounds like a pretty cool place to go. So I moved there. The very first thing I did was went to Mother Maybelle's grave and Johnny Cash's grave and June's grave. And I don't know, I was like paying my respects. Little did I know that that thread would continue on at some point in my career. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of playing with people. I had a friend that was there. We started a band called Elmwood. It was like this jam band. Was this sort of Dave Matthews band kind of thing? Yes, it was literally Dave Matthews band. It had a saxophone in it, man. And I was like playing acoustic guitar. I wanted to be Dave so bad. And... We played one show. It was in this bar that was in a a field in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And there happened to be the son of an agent at Paradigm there. He was like, you guys, I never do this, but I'm going to go tell my dad about you guys. A week later, we signed with Paradigm and they're like, you want to go on the road? And we're like, yeah, let's go. I was 19 and hopped in the van and never looked back. Wow. And then you ended up writing a song for Tim McGraw. That must have made quite a difference in your trajectory. What it did was it started opening doors of like, hey, maybe this kid can write. 
with a corporation, they're obviously interested in profits, but it's generated by people that can get cuts in, in Nashville and in town. And I didn't know what co-writing was. I'd never written a song with someone else before. Yeah, my very first cut was with my girlfriend's dad, Joe Leathers, who is still a very close friend of mine, and Kyle Jacobs, who recently just passed. And yeah, we wrote it one night. We were drinking whiskey and finished it. And Kyle texted me a week later. It was like, hey, Tim McGraw is going to record our song. And from then on, it opened doors to get me in the room. And then I got in the rooms with people like Natalie Hemby and Lori McKenna and Hillary Lindsay. And these people, along with Joe and Kyle, really encouraged me to stop co-writing and to chase what it was that made me me and an artist. Because I would play them songs that I'd write. So you mentioned Johnny Cash, and you've been through some difficult times with addiction. He had some of that as well. And it's well known that you overdosed at one point, I think back in 2015. Is that right? That's right, yeah. You know, as you know, there are millions of people who deal with this kind of thing, including some that are probably listening right now. How much has that struggle become a part of your songwriting? I think it taught me purpose, ironically. I made a couple records about it, but it taught me purpose beyond that. It taught me that like, that's what my job is on this planet is to write from a place of not suffering from woe is me, I'm an artist, suffering. It's the human condition that we will always encounter a sense of suffering, a sense of weakness, a sense of lack of hope. And being an addict, when I was at my lowest, those were things that I felt the deepest, which was emptiness and a lack of perspective on hope. And songwriting, again, I turned to it just like I did when I was 14. I could make sense of something that I thought I'd never be able to make sense of. I might not ever make complete sense of it. But writing about it, gave me the belief that I can at least get out of it. Yeah. You said you had made a couple albums about that time in your life. And then you also, I think it was kind of during the pandemic, made this record with your dad. Yeah. Which is terrific. And the songwriting is fantastic. I'm sure that you were inspired by that. What was that like for you to be on the other side of this rough patch that you had gone through and to be sitting there with your dad making this record? Man, I remember sitting there and just having such a complete sense of joy. Watching him in the booth, recording a song, Old Friends, you know, that I'd heard since I was a kid that started me on this journey. And even more so, he was there with me every step of the way. When we were in a car, he'd pack in there with us and go and play for no one. And then we moved up to like a van and then we moved up to a bus and people started showing up to shows. And, and he also was there when I was at my ugliest and at my worst. All of these things kind of coalesced into a real moment of joy. That's what I mean by like complete sense of joy. That I was like, damn, like these are the real rewards. Around the same exact time, I won some songwriter award in Nashville. And yes, I was elated to be recognized, but like it didn't come close to the sense of joy that I had watching my dad 45 years after he had set out to do a similar thing and then 
put it away so that he could provide for his family. Uh, to see it happen was amazing. Well, it's a great album, and you can feel the joy, I think, coming through. Yeah. Rustin, so you met your ex-wife, Casey Musgraves, at the Bluebird Cafe, I believe. Is that right? I did. Which sounds like something out of a TV series. It was. That was a trip. <laughs> if you don't mind my asking, what's your relationship like with her now? Uh, very peaceful. With things like that, like you got to find a sense of boundaries and you have to find a sense of emotional boundaries and give things time to kind of get right and get yourself right. And you leave a marriage, you're deunionizing your sense of identity. Whereas like when you enter into one, you kind of become one. And I was so lost when I met her. I was only four months out of a overdose and I was clean-ish. I was trying, you know. And it was a very classic story of a really good woman came in and did a lot of good things for my spirit and my sense of self. Those things never die. And it doesn't matter what this person did or this or this or this. That's something that I'll always be grateful for. And I carry that with me to this day. And I, I always will. I want to talk a little bit about your new album, which is called The Weakness. And I'll get into the record and a couple of the songs in a second, but I'm curious how you set the stage for it by moving up to this little town near the Kentucky border. What was it about that location that helped your process? It was away. It was out. I lived on the east side of Nashville forever and west side. I've lived everywhere in Nashville. You can't go anywhere without running into either someone that you know and it's also wonderful to see people all the time that you know. But given the pandemic and then the divorce, and then my sister was going through a divorce, I listened to that voice that's kind of led me in my life. And it was like, you need to go figuratively into the woods and rediscover who you are again. And I may never have an opportunity to do that again by myself, you know, just live in a house and start working on it. And it was very like the notebook in a way. I'm still there. I'm almost finished with it. I'm probably going to sell it soon, hopefully before tour. When I'm there, I don't know anyone. It's a, you know, a hardworking blue collar town. I don't really get out much there. I walk around and stuff, but most of my neighbors are much older than me. And it provided me this sense of solace and this sense of like, okay, let's like take a long look in the mirror. Let's go there. Just like everyone, we need to take inventory around such an uncertain time in the world and in our lives. So can you describe it really briefly? I mean, it's kind of this Victorian bungalow, right? Yeah, yeah. It's got a big porch. I got rocking chairs on the porch. The previous owners kind of were a bit live, laugh, love, you know, not knocking that style. It's just not my style. So I had to do a lot of painting and a lot of redoing some things and kind of just keeping it historic. Because when I walked into the house to look at it for the first time, first thing I noticed, and it's still hanging in my house, is this old, like blurred out black and white picture. So I asked the realtor, hey, what's up with this picture with this dude in a top hat? And he was like, oh, well, that's the house. And that's the first owner of the house. He was the first mayor of Portland, Tennessee. The picture was taken in like 1911. Nuts. That's so cool. Yeah, it's a really cool house. Like all old houses, there's some vibes in there where you don't feel like you're entirely alone. But I'll say that this house has never made me feel like it was negative energy. It just all felt very 
supportive and like I was in the right place. There's a great song on the new album called Mending Song. Mm. And it almost sounds like you've written your life story in verse. (laughs) It starts out, I was born in Carolina near the paper mill. You talk about your marriage ending and moving up north to mend. Were you talking about Portland? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me not to write something that isn't just explicitly real in my life. I've tried. I've tried to like give it the old poetic sauce, but 99.9% of things I've ever put on paper is because it's happening or it happened. There's a great line in that song where you quote your father saying, have faith, there's no storm that doesn't pass. And I just love that line. Do you remember when he said that to you or was that more of kind of a refrain, something that he may have said over and over? I think it was in September, October of 2020. And I was really hurting about, oh my God, I've moved away from everyone, got a divorce, like willingly did that. I listened to this voice and I just feel so alone up here. I'm writing and stuff, but like I feel really alone. And he was like, son, you just got to have faith. You got to have faith. Because not every storm is going to last. I was like, that's the truth. That's the truth. It's so often we can get so anticipatory or anxious or wanting pain to end. Like that's where you get in trouble sometimes. It's not being able to sit with that pain. And know that, like, yes, this too shall pass. That was his southern way of saying that. My marriage ended and I moved up north to mend. I tried to fight it like a needle in my skin. The hole inside me kept on growing. Everything went black. So then I heard the words of my father. Have faith. But it's really in those moments we find out who we are and what we're made of. And so many times in my life, I wasn't able to sit with that and I had to numb it. So I decided to sit with it this time. And I'm really glad that I did because I learned so much about myself, so much about the situation that I left and what it was that I wanted to do. I want to ask you about the title track, uh, The Weakness, which is a very different song. It almost reminds me of Band of Horses. And it kind of builds to this big sound that sort of surrounds you. What felt different about this song when you wrote it? And what were you going for? So I'd made two records that were essentially hyper songwriting focused that had beautiful production around it that supported me with an instrument. I didn't want to change my songwriting style. If you're going to do it, third record is the time to do it to explore a variety of different sounds and atmospheres. And I was listening to like a lot of 80s Dylan and Daniel Lanois stuff where like there's this very large sense of production, but it also feels very intimate. When the live show happens, even some of these songs on Dying Star that are kind of sleepy, they have a lot of energy to them. We put on this rock show when we play as a band. And I wanted to be able to try and capture some of that energy that felt like, oh, we can play this on an arena stage and completely crush without thinking twice. 
the weakness isn't an outlier, but it's not the entirety of the record doesn't sound like that. I just wanted to have moments on this record where I'm like, okay, let's just destroy a stage, you know, and put that emotion out there on recording. Well, I think that one's going to do it and it's got a lot of power behind it and a lot of emotion and you can feel that. Thanks, man. So, Rustin, you're going to be playing a lot of dates this year, and I know you're so excited to share this music and get in front of some big audiences. What's a song that I haven't mentioned that you can't wait to get out there? Mm. Uh, there's a song called Wicked Hands. That one like really went there. That was battling the darkness of saying, what do I do out here? The line is, I'm stranded in the desert uh, with my empty and wicked hands, just trying to find my way before I'm lost. Yeah, that was like the dark moment. That was before I heard dad say, hey, the storm is going to pass. So I'd say that one. That one kind of starts very somber and then builds into kind of like an opacy type situation. I can't wait to hear that one. Well, Rustin, I just have one more question for you. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be Southern? What does it mean to be Southern? There's so many elements about Southern culture that I love. There's so many that I kind of roll my eyes at, you know. But with the right people, Southern culture can bring out the best of community, a lot of times through food, a lot of times through SEC football. And I love those things. Whenever I'm around my people that are kind of very deeply in that type of culture, um, I feel very at home and very at peace and comforted. It's like when you're there, you truly have a sense of family and community in those circles. Well, Rustin Kelly, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Yeah, thank you, Sid. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rustin Kelly. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my interview with the woman that some call the queen of outlaw country, Nikki Lane. We'll see you then. <laughs>